in reference to, I think it was about a week ago, he went to a very exclusive restaurant where apparently he wasn't <laughs> able to gain access to. I saw that. And part of me is like, well, why is it news? And then another part of me realized, oh, he tweeted this himself. He published the news that he got denied service. Um, so he actually tweeted, he says, wow, turned away by Mater D for lunch at Latour del Joel Rupi. I have no idea what that word is. No far gras burger for you is what he said. And of course, he put real life Seinfeld on that. Yeah, it sounds like he was playing the, what, you don't, don't you know who I am? How could you possibly deny me, even though this is like an exclusive restaurant and you always have to have reservations and I don't have reservations. <laughs> I don't know if it was that. You think, no, that's you exactly think what was, it was. You think yeah, he this, was bashing them? This, so this showed up in my Facebook feed somehow or another. I guess people that I'm Facebook friends with are also Facebook friends with Mark Benioff. And uh, I guess Mark posted it or someone linked to it. And then just all kinds of people were commenting on it. But yeah, he was just... Yeah, he was just trying to throw out his uh, I'm famous card. I'm rich and famous. How dare you? I didn't get that sense from it at all. So maybe well, what, there's what did context you think, out what there. What did you think happened? I don't know. Just one of those life events that happens and you go, oh, hey, I went to this restaurant and got denied. Oh, well. And he didn't have reservations. I mean, this is like the Oprah thing. Yeah, but and it, which he ended references up being the, the Seinfeld thing. I mean, it was, it's almost like he's still, he's making fun of it. Not like well, he was offended. That's how he tried to cast it as if these, these people were crazy. You're putting me on the side of defending Benioff again. That's that was your premise. No, my premise was it's a that. funny story that he went out and got denied. Uh, yeah. So, anyways, I we lined up a clip because for those that do not understand or know the Seinfeld episode, which if you don't, like you're either like a newborn or you just <laughs> don't exist newborn. in the world until just now. <laughs> All right, so, which so I can't, is this I number can't, one? This is number three, clip number three. Okay. Uh, I don't have a number three. I just have Soup Nazi clip. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. Sorry. Okay. You know what? Does, has anyone ever told you you look exactly like Al Pacino? You know, son of a woman. Hooah! Hooah! <laughs> Very good. Very good. You know something? Mm. No soup for you! Come back. One year. <laughs> Next. <laughs> I think that episode defined Seinfeld. I mean, there there isn't anybody who doesn't think Seinfeld and just immediately goes, no soup for you. Yeah, I guess. So. I mean, I, I don't know. I didn't I actually didn't watch Seinfeld that much, but it seems like Seinfeld had a lot of defining moments, but that was definitely your, I agree. That's like, that's one of the big ones. You know, Seinfeld is one of those that I didn't actively watch when it was on, but when it came to reruns, I pretty much watched every episode. And I'm not sure why that is, but maybe I just, oh, I, I know what it was. I didn't have a TV back then. <laughs> And the soup Nazi has, a, has uh, inspired many others. No service for you! <laughs> uh, <laughs> and of course, Benioff's take. I, I wish we could have had audio of him doing this one, but it's no far gras burger for you. Yeah. <laughs> I feel so sorry for Mark. He just, what is you know, gras poor, poor what guy. is that? Is that some cheese or thing? Lager, what is that? No, it's, yeah. it's duck liver. Is that man. like raw meat? Is that it's, what that is? No, it's, it's goose liver. Oh. Well, it's it's illegal in San Francisco now. They've made it completely illegal. Really? Yeah. Well, it's because San Francisco San Francisco's on the leading edge of you know, animal rights or something. They're on the leading edge of growing beef to eat, so you don't have to kill an animal. Oh, I don't even want to hear about that. <laughs> oh, well, that's could we you imagine three D printing your steak for the evening? So you, you just it's just like a like a Star Trek replicator. You just go in and say, "Give me my steak," and it 
3D prints it for you. So what do you do? Fill up your printer hopper with like um like textured soy protein and soy isolate and I don't know, some other kind of weird gelatin or no, that's that's sorry, that's animal derived. Um you know, leg lignin or legumes and stuff. <laughs> and then it prints you out it prints you out some kind of vegan Franken thing that looks like a steak. Yeah, I, I don't know how Star Trek's replicators are even conceivably able to work, but I, I assume there's some kind of matter that it's taking and reconfiguring into that food. Yeah. Uh, the the implications of such things. You think that'll run on 110? 110. A voltage. Oh. Oh, no. <laughs> See, I think something like that's the Star Trek thing, that would certainly require like some kind of crazy, you know, future power source that we couldn't even imagine. They all run off of flux capacitors. Yeah. I mean, especially if it's like creating matter I mean, you're talking about, I don't know, surely that would involve like bond, like creating, creating of atoms that. Well, you can't create matter, but you can rearrange matter. But you have to get, I mean, you have, okay. So if you're going to create, if you're going to move someone from, you're talking about like the teleporting thing. Well, no, not the teleporting thing. I'm talking about the replicators where you, they walk, they walk into their room and they have this little machine and they tell it what they want and it generates it like a hot cup of coffee or a steak dinner or steak and potatoes and it just appears. Yeah, so, so imagine now like printers, right? They have, you know, you have a, your black ink tank and then the cyan and magenta and yellow, right? Right. Different colors. So maybe the, the replicator, what they have is they have um, three tanks, protons, neutrons and electrons. And when you, you know, when it goes to make something for you, it just like combines all those into, uh, atoms and then into compounds and things. That'd be cool, huh? That would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we'll ever get there, but I'm saying It'll that be would one take technologies that, that, that maybe pop could, is plausible, but it'll be not something I understand how it works. Yeah. Well, I mean, just, I'm saying it would take an, ins- like an insane amount of energy to actually take those, you know, low level elements and combine them into, because I think like forming nuclei takes a ton of energy, just like splitting does well, as well. I'll right? tell you what, whenever I first saw that happen, because it kind of appears like it, like it does whenever they transport someone. What I really thought that was is, is he was ordering from a kitchen and the kitchen was just teleporting the food to him. Mm. It's kind of what I originally thought that was. So speaking of Benioff, we were, uh, last week we were talking about how he, like he sold some stock and then uh, Parker Harris sold some stock. Actually, I think they're, those weren't even scheduled to be executed until like yesterday or something. But this is from Monday, a couple of days ago, June or June 30th. Um, and I just found this, so not really prepped, but it says all of a sudden, Mark Benioff has been cashing out hundreds of thousands of shares since June 9th. He sold over 420,000 shares for nearly 24 million. So I think we talked Last week it was what I thought it was a couple million, right? But I guess that was just one one transaction. Let's see, all of those all of those transactions were pre-scheduled, so it's not a rea- it's not a reaction to something going on at Salesforce. Yeah, I mean, so Benioff still owns uh, nearly forty million shares. He's the second largest shareholder after Fidelity. Um, but it says the volume of the transactions in one month is. It's highly unusual for Benioff. He's not a Sheryl Sandberg. She routinely sells 17 million to 20 million chunks of Facebook stock. <laughs> you know, I mean, hey, everyone's got to get by, right? I guess. I mean, <clears throat> well, he's got more hospitals to build. Well, that's true. He's like, yeah. he's been, I mean, 
he's, I don't even know, like, so this money he's given to the, the hospital or hospitals, whatever, those may just be pledges. You know, you know, you pledge to give a hundred million. That means like, I promise at some point in the future to give a hundred million bucks. Right. Uh, and I don't know if that's what he did, but maybe he's like having to make good on some of that stuff. You know, who knows? I don't let's, know. Let's I just say he cash he pro- money. <laughs> he here's, pro- here's, here's, here's my payment for my plaque on the building. I, yeah. I think it's safe <laughs> to say that Mark's monthly cash requirements are probably quite high uh, compared to uh, your typical person. Well, of course he's trying to get foie gras burgers at uh, <laughs> exclusive restaurants. Yeah. Um, what else? Sell. So, okay. I have a question for you about these. I was looking at the sell, the summer 14 release dates. <clears throat> I've noticed this is a trend. Like in effect, I think what, what are, what are we on now? Well, or less, what was before summer for winter 14 spring. You have a spring winter, spring, summer. So isn't spring the one that because of just a lot of technical snafus or operational issues, they, it took them like th- from, from the time they rolled out NA one to get all the other instances rolled out was like three months. Yeah. So spring got delayed for a few issues and then that pushed summer out. But only um, delayed for some, like they had already deployed spring. So you have some orgs that are on spring and then other orgs that didn't get it for another like two to three months. That would, that's the weird part. Well, like, I mean, you have it in the sandboxes and they did, de- they did deploy it to some of the instances and then stopped, I guess, because they found some issues. I'm right. assuming they're performance issues or something along those lines. So, and imagine if you're on, cause most of the, most of the, um, most of the instances did get delayed. So imagine you're on one of those instances, instances that's delayed. That's where your org lives. And from the time that, because they, they upgrade the sandbox is usually a month or two in advance. So right. you're, but the, from the time that your sandbox gets upgraded and you're doing your regression testing and all your future development, it's another five months until you can take that code and deploy it into your org because that's how long it takes from, from when your sandbox got upgraded until your production org got upgraded. And it's weird because, you know, Salesforce, that's one of their big selling points is uh, is with, and this is, I think the software and software as a service in general is everyone's on the same version. You know, you don't have to worry about upgrades and paying for the upgrades and planning them and doing them and the rollback failure scenarios and all that kind of stuff. You don't have to worry about any of that. Everyone's on the same version. Well, not really, not anymore. Not the way Salesforce is doing this. I don't and know I, if there's a way that they can't. I mean, at some point we do need the ability to test our customizations before it actually goes public, you know, into production some of these new release features. Oh, I agree. Right. But I mean, you don't, you don't want five months to go by because at the point in time that you upgrade your sandbox, that's now because the sandbox is where you get to do all your testing, especially regression testing. You can't safely deploy anything from sa- at that point from sandbox to your production org until your production org gets upgraded because you're deploying into a different version of Salesforce. So your regression tests basically are worthless. That much is true. And then if you're doing new development and you're targeting that new version of the API, you'll have issues. You'll have to downgrade your, your classes. Exactly. And there's production. And there are all kinds of edge case snafus with a metadata API on deploying between versions of Salesforce that are completely undocumented. Really weird thing. I've run things with like dashboard components that are completely obscure and like not documented at all. And it turns out the issue was that some, you know, a new version of the metadata API. You know, you know, you had to you had to manually change like your dashboard component definitions and stuff like that. Stuff that just is completely not value added and takes a ton of time to figure out. And even support can't help you with it because they just they're just not trained well enough. But anyway, back to my point. So here are the dates for summer 14. 
and this is uh, kind of old, right? So, okay, May, uh, let's see, no, um, June 6th, the sandboxes got upgraded. And this was a, this was an article from like May. So I don't even know if they actually hit these dates. June 6th, sandbox upgraded. Uh, June 20th, NA1 upgraded. So that's for two weeks, two weeks later. So yeah, two weeks to test. That, that's actually, that's a, that's a good window, I, I think. And may, some people may think that's not enough, but I mean, again, you don't want that window to be too long because it's, it's as long as your sandbox and production are running on different, in, different versions, you really can't do any deployments safely in that period of time. So, okay. June 20th, NA1 upgraded. June 7th is the second release weekend where a, a few more instances get upgraded. So that's like three weeks later, right? So now these people, their sandbox has been different from production for five weeks. Okay. And then June 18th, another week and a half later, final release weekend. So these people were going like six and a half, seven weeks between when their sandbox upgraded and when their production instance got upgraded. And again, the, to me, the weirdest thing is you've got a full month between when instances started to get upgraded and when they all were all finished being upgraded. So you have a month, a whole month out of a, out of a release that only has a three or four month lifespan anyway. So a good third of that lifespan during, during, uh, is taken up by everyone being on different versions of Salesforce. I mean, that's, that's kind of tough. I mean, that's, yeah, that's gotta be tough is, for them to support too. It's an issue, but it's not the norm. I mean, it's, it's not every release that it gets delayed two months. Well, this one doesn't even delay. This was the plan. That's what I'm saying. Summer 14, this was their plan. I mean, now the, that's the no, way the, summer 14 got pushed because spring was so late. This, so this was after the spring snafu though. Yeah. And what I'm, what I'm saying is the time between they started to upgrade instances to, to summer 14 and mm-hmm. the time when they were done upgrading instances was a month. And that was the plan that was by, that was by plan, not by operational accidents. Yeah, but that's still the norm. I mean, usually the, every other weekend, usually over two weekends, they'll upgrade all the sandboxes. It is it, no, it is the norm now, but it but it didn't used to be. No, but I mean, I think I think the system's definitely getting bigger and more complicated, and I wouldn't be surprised. And I actually would welcome it if they reduced the release cycle down to maybe twice a year. You know, maybe just do two seasons: summer and winter, or spring and summer or winter, or something. I mean, at some point that, that level of just constant release cycle, I, I'm not sure what benefit we're getting other yeah. than, other than the ability to tout and say, Hey, you're get you're getting four updates a year and we got stuff constantly being pushed and it tells a good story. But I think from a, from a practical standpoint, I think maybe at some point we all kind of need to take a breather. I think, I think it is a, a selling point and just the, the, the kind of story about it, because I mean, operationally speaking, um, it seems to be difficult for Salesforce to, to pull off the three to four releases per year. I mean, the, the flip, the flip side to it is if, what if you're waiting for a feature and that's just really holding you up from being able to accomplish what you need to accomplish in a efficient and maybe cost-effective way. And so kind of reducing the release cycle means that you're having to wait six months to be able to implement your, your new solution versus, you know, maybe two months. I mean, I've got features I've been waiting on for seven or eight years now, but I just have to live with it. That's true. It's a trade-off. There's pros and cons. I mean, you know, it's Salesforce. You're going to get what they give you. You know, you don't, this is not something we control. So we bow to the cloud gods. So speaking of 14, did you see anything that you were looking forward to in there? Not really. I, I, I mean, I've got some things I jotted down I thought were interesting. And when we've talked about doing an episode about 
you know, new release features, but we just can't seem to get our crap together to do that. So by the time we do, it'll be released. <laughs> it's, it is released. <laughs> well, it, no, it'll be released on the 12th. I want to say the 12th. Is that what the release date is when they start rolling into production? You're talking about summer so, 14? Yeah. So next weekend. Well, it started, it started two weeks ago. It started June 20th. Release to production? Yes. In, instances, some instances were upgraded the 20th. Some will be, um, some will be upgraded uh, this coming weekend, this uh, Sunday or Saturday or Sunday. And then the final group of instances will be July 18th. See, I think you're looking at sandboxes. Hold on. Hold no, on. Hold on. Hold on, I'll, hold on. Here, I'll send you the link. There's some maintenance releases on coming. On our back channel. So summer 14 release window. So if I'm right, you owe me a beer. July 11th. Da, 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 da. And this is the point in the podcast, uh, the segment that we call looking stuff up on the internet while you wait. We but you're mu- looking at, we have any music for that? You're looking at, at sandbox releases. June no. 20th is the NA1, and that's always, go- NA1 always goes first. That's always the first yes, one that goes that's, first. And that's what I'm saying. It's done. Everyone that, else that has is to in the wait, past, and John. everyone else is going to wait no, until listen, June 21, June 11th, July 11th. No, June 20th, they start. Okay. Now go look down at July 7th, the second release weekend, NA6 through NA9. I don't go by that. I go by what's on the trust, and it says major release schedule, NA6, July 11th. Well, so what do you trust? I trust the trust. I trust the trust when it comes oh, well, to the release already, cycle. We've already proven I that. I don't trust the trust when it comes to issues. We've already, we've already proven that uh, trusting trust is not a good thing. But I think you know the, the release window on the trust site does get maintained far more than this blog post is going to be Oh, probably so. So let's see. So this thing said July 7th, NA6 through NA9. Um, where are those now? Okay, so they're like four days off. Uh, well, no, so NA... NA8 and NA9 are July 11th. NA6, oh, same thing, July 11th. Okay, so this is, this is so close. And then, is there anything on July wait, wait, 18th? Wait, who, who was right? Say that again? Yeah, yeah. No, I was right. No, I was right. You're pointing to that other article. You said July 7th. I said July 11th. I was right. No, what I'm saying is, no, you're wrong. I'm saying that they, from when they start until the, when they finish is a month. Yes, that much is true. It is I mean, going to take about a month from NA1 being enabled all the way till... Now, where is NA1 on here? It's not because it's already done. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, take, they take off the schedule as soon as it happens. Yeah. Yeah. So, th- I mean, that's my, that's my point, though. For a whole month, Salesforce customers are on different versions of Salesforce. Which I just, but that, I that could be just, you know, hedging against, you know, release NA1 getting released with, with, with the new release. And if anything happens, they've minimized their risk in terms of who's affected by any unforeseen uh, issues. How do you think they like being the canary in the coal mine? Let's let's do NA one first and see what happens. I don't think there's that many actual customers on NA one. There's a ton. There are not, a ton. No, that's know, the that's know, the biggest. I know one historically still. it's the biggest, and there's a ton. But I also know of plenty of cases where they've moved people off of that instance. So they, I think they've been well, selective about who's That's because they, that's because they let it get. It. They let NA one get way too big. I mean, that's but true. I, but I don't I, see. I don't think there's any way for us to know how many are on these instances, right? No, I'm sure they know, and maybe there's right. some document out there that that tell. Well, maybe not. Not even that. But anyways, my point is that I'm sure they've they've been selective about who's on that any one instance. And those are the people that they're they're working with whenever a new release comes out. So they used to be able to upgrade everyone at the same time. And now they can't. Is that just I don't think it's thing? a technical issue. I think it's just a well? I think it's just a way of them hedging against any unforeseen issue so you so you think it's they've they've made this judgment call and instead of being able to say because they used to be able to say you know everyone's on the same version and in fact i still hear them say that even though it's 
nowadays very inaccurate that you think they, they made the judgment call that it's, it's better for them to roll these things out over a month instead of having everyone on the same version. Well, I, I think, I think two things happened. I think the reason this release cycle is so long is because of those issues and they're, they're being overly, not overly cautious, but they're being much more cautious with this release and spanning out over that month to make sure it scales well and the performance is there. I have a feeling that there was a major performance issue and that's why they extended this release out. Cause usually it's done in over two weekends. Usually NA one goes first, but then over, you know, two weekends, everyone else is done. And this one seems like it's going, you know, maybe two or three weekends. Yeah. Three weekends to get everyone done. But, you know, they've also added more instances in the last few years. So it could just be that this is the new norm because they have so many more instances. Whereas before they maybe had, you know, the, the North America clusters and the, the European clusters and whatever else. And now they've got a ton more. It's weird because now, you know, between things like this and also things like the HP Superpod. <laughs> it's feeling less and less multi-tenant. Like I feel less and less like I'm on the same tenant as the company next door to me that runs Salesforce. Why is that? Because we, we could be on different versions. We could be on different, you know, we could be running our own private pod or something. Yeah, but it's not as extreme as being on version, you know, winter 2012 and the next guy next door to you is on 2014. I mean, that's, it's not to that extreme. It's maybe that one release cycle difference. Right. Yeah. It's only going to be one version of, but it's, it's, we basically have, you know, 20 multi-tenant systems now. And if you happen to be on the same instance as someone else, then you're, you're the same, you're a tenant in the same building. They are. So do you think this is just a matter of treading new water that the Salesforce is just kind of having to figure out how to deal with this many instances and how to release it? And maybe there's just not a model that, that says, yep, we've been through this and this is how it, how you do it. And they're just, they're just kind of doing the best they can to. Well, you got to remember. So Salesforce uh, sorry, I got a funny note on the side band here. Um, Salesforce started before cloud computing was really a thing. And before, I mean, virtualization, I mean, of course, this existed for really decades. If you think about some of the mainframe type stuff, but like modern, the modern version of, of virtualization really was, I don't even know if it had even really started by the time Salesforce was in business. So Salesforce kind of rolled their own thing and, and, you know, by most measures, they did a pretty great job. Um, and I think over the past 15 years, they've had to grow into new versions of kind of like what, what it, um, what modern virtualization technology allows you to do. And also what the, the tools available to do, to do things at scale have completely changed like three or four times during the lifespan of Salesforce. And that's why I think you've seen, I mean, you see them always doing things to address just, and you can tell they don't talk about it a whole lot, but to address just their internal scale scaling issues and, and how to deal with how to scale out. Um, and, and I think right now what we're seeing is just, you know, they have 20 different instances. So what they, and that's kind of like, it's, I mean, maybe an analogy to that is like um, sharding a database across, you know, like say 20 different instances simply for scale. You, you can't build a single database server that's big enough to serve a million transactions a second, or I'm just throwing numbers out. Instead, you have to, you have to shard that database or somehow replicate it or whatever into a bunch of smaller instances. And I feel like that's what these pods are, or is that what they call them? Pods. Yeah. 
they have all these different pods because you can't have just one, one pod that serves everyone. Yeah. It just, you know, doesn't work. And plus Salesforce has talked openly about how they're running everything on basically like generic PCs. Right. These are by definition kind of small machines. So I think it makes sense. But I, th- I, I think it one. makes sense. I mean, cause we're, we're not talking about long processes. We're talking about a bit of process, a lot of small, a lot of small transactions. So being able to spread that across, you know, a hundred machines versus one machine, they can do a certain amount of complicated tasks. I think it makes sense that we're, we're basically going for volume versus some kind of high capacity processor or something. Yeah. Basically um, not trying to funnel it into one pipe essentially. Um, so do you want to talk about some interesting features in summer 14 now that it's here for some people? Well, like I said, I forgot most of them cause you weren't ready. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the That's main a- things I'm looking forward to, um, there's actually a couple of things. So there's, I did a webinar l- either this week or last week. My weeks blurred together, but anyways, on the, um, analytics API, which looks pretty interesting. Um, in the past we've done things where we've kind of used the export feature to get access to report data. Do you remember having to do that in a few certain cases? It is like a URL you can hit and it it's it's kind of report. undocumented, but you mm-hmm. can kind of hit and get a, basically a CSV of, of report data. Um, and basically what the analytics API is doing is it's letting you kind of do that, but in a supported way. So you'll be able to access report data um, and use that in your code. And the example they're really doing it for, and the reason they call it the analytics API is that you can basically create a report in Salesforce, use that as the backend for maybe a, a dashboard or something like that. And then you could pull that data. You can, you know, have your your client side scripting, you know, sleep for a few minutes or however long you want to refresh, and then have it go and ping that data set again. And there's some internal efficiencies that Salesforce developed so that that ping doesn't cause issues with the system, meaning it'll cache that report data for a certain amount of time or until something changes and it needs to refresh that cache. Um, so as long as the data is not changing, there's still some efficiency there because it's not having to redo all the queries. Um, and so they did some examples with that and using a JavaScript um, kind of charting API called D3. Um, and so they were able to show some pretty nice stuff, you know, some dashboards refreshing pretty quickly. So someone could go in the system, modify some records. And then because the client side JavaScript is polling or refreshing periodically, you could see those changes happen. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. I think I can see some uses beyond just dashboarding for that type of API. Um, you know, just some things where, Clients maybe want to create a report of data that we need to somehow consume or do some make some decisions on. Um, they'll have the ability to change their filters and all those kind of things to to basically say this is the data I want included in your business logic that you wrote for us. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. Like almost making the source of data for some kind of custom code make it configurable right. by the client. So as long as they're not changing fields and things like that, but they're just kind of changing their filters. Um, you know where that kind of thing applies. Um, I could see some value there in in kind of using that as as something other than just analytics. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Another small but almost major thing because it affects unit testing is is the darn sta- uh, standard um, price books. So you'll be able to create price books, but you won't be able to create a standard price book. But you will be able to get access to the standard price book through the test class. So you'll be able to say test dot get standard price book. And does that does that get you your production standard price book or just a, an empty one, but it's the standard price book? No, it gets you the production price book, basically. So, the, but that not that kind of a doorway into see all data, basically, though? 
Because if it's getting you your standard price pick, that means it's getting you all the price pick entries, which means it's getting you all the products. Yeah, but even within today, you still have that kind of odd multi-dimensional context where in some cases you're accessing real data like you are with users. And in other cases, your data is completely isolated, isolated, like, you know, querying accounts and those kind of things. So it's, it's nothing new to what we've been dealing with. It, yeah, ideally, all of it would be isolated and you'd have to create all your data from scratch, but that's not the world we live in with Salesforce. So even though it's not a perfect solution, it's still a solution so that I can at least write some tests without having to include all the data in the system. Mm, yeah. And I can isolate that data a bit That'll more. That'll be a nice one. Because um, having to do, you know, see all data in your, in your tests in order to get access to the price book. I mean, the problem is, is that opens the window to all production data, which can make that, it can ironically make that same test very hard. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, I mean, opportunities are fairly centric to, to lots, what everyone, lots of stuff, right? Lots exactly. of stuff, a lot of custom business logic that, that companies have around opportunities. I mean, it's kind of the heart of CRM, right? <laughs> you know, well, I, I would say the heart of CRM is relationship management and that's con- accounts and contacts. But beyond that, you know, well, that's just uh, contact management. Well, yeah, I guess. But the actual opportunity is is definitely centric, and that's where we end up putting a lot of business logic around. And because of it, we end up having to write a lot of these tests that just you know span across all data. And yeah. I almost wonder if 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 not having to do that might even improve the speed of our tests as well. Um, so at least, okay. at least from memory, that's that's about all I can remember. Yeah, you know what? So summer fourteen in general though was it's definitely one of these evolutionary things. It was not not a ton of big stuff. I think that's common when leading up to a Dreamforce conference. Well, yeah, because they, they're going to save all the good stuff for Dreamforce, right? Yeah. I would hope so. <laughs> Even though we won't be there. Because yeah, we didn't to talk Disney about World. that. Yeah. So we talked about recently about going to Dreamforce, and then I realized... Well, let's, let's, finish, our, let's finish our features. Okay, we'll finish we'll the features. And then we'll talk about that. how you're snubbing me for Dreamforce. <laughs> <clears throat> all right. External ID, so you can now have seven on an object instead of three. Although I'll tell you, if you've got seven external IDs on an object, you have a cluster of a data situation. Um, True, but what a lot of people aren't using that for integrating with external systems. They're using it to index those fields so they're searchable. Well, you don't have to do that to get indexed fields. Well, it's the easiest way to do it. So that it's, it gets included in your global search. All the external IDs get included in that global search. Well, also regular, um, you know, non-long text fields get indexed nowadays. But I don't think they're part of the search algorithm for global search. They should. Text fields are, aren't they? Mm, I don't think so. We'll have to test that, but I don't think so. Do some follow-up. My recommendation always has always been that if you need it searchable, we'll have to create an external ID on it. And those are limited, blah, blah, blah. We need to start doing follow-up. Okay. Our... Text fields. Prove John wrong is what I imagine you're writing right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> John said something. Just know? prove him wrong. <laughs> um, the database.com doc, docs are all dead. They're all gone now. So they're, I guess, continuing to phase out database.com. Uh, database.com documentation set has been replaced by the standard Salesforce documentation. The following guides are no longer available. So it's just like a ton of stuff. Um, I'm not surprised by that. I think I think their mobile toolkit kind of killed it for them. I mean, the only real advantage to having the database.com, of course, is if you're an ISV and you're building everything on top of it and you're not using any force.com features. 
But the other advantage was, you know, you could build a kind of almost a cloud, your own cloud using database.com in your mobile apps. And I think just by nature of, of mobile being accessible through CRM, just kind of, there wasn't really much for it to do. I don't know if that made sense for that came out right. I just, I just think that without CRM, there isn't much value to the database.com model. If that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know if it's just, I don't know if it's, I mean, I think my, my skepticism of database.com was, I don't know that it's general purpose enough for just your, your run of the mill, you know, cloud-based application that someone wants to host. Well, I, I guess what I'm, what I was trying to get to is that mobile is, is probably the most, is probably the foot in the door, but because of the way it's licensed and I, I just, I'm not sure if it was a viable option realistically. Yeah. Licensing, it was the other issue, I think. Um, continue. So Salesforce one supports a ton of new things that it didn't support before, which made me ask like, well, what does it still not? I didn't realize there were so many things you couldn't do on Salesforce one. Um, but if you look in the release notes, like all this new stuff you can do that you've always been able to do through, through the normal Salesforce UI, but you couldn't do through Salesforce one. So they've had a lot of stuff, but what I realized is there's still a ton of stuff that you can't do through Salesforce one. And I have a feeling Dreamforce will be announcements of all the new things you can do. Uh, I mean, they're I doing mean, the Salesforce tour one now, so I'm sure they're trying to get a lot of that out in terms of, so I think what we're seeing in summer is a lot of things they're talking about now in the Salesforce one tours. But I also think, you know, Dreamforce is, is a place where they're going to kind of really unveil some, hopefully some, some much better integration between the desktop and the mobile. And we'll see a lot more synergy there. Oh, did I just use synergy? I used mm. the word synergy. Oh. Yeah, dang for that. <laughs> um, Salesforce files sync. Is that new? I guess that's new now. Or was that pilot before? But I think it's GA now. The weird thing about that to me is it, they, it's technically part of chatter. And this just goes back to my like, what is chatter not? Like, I mean, just almost anything noob is like, it's part of chatter. And it's chatter's just absorbing everything, like the blob. Well, under normal Salesforce architecture, if you're going to attach something to a record, you would use an attachment. But Chatter lets you kind of share the document, share the the image, share whatever that that file is. So I think it's just a matter of context. I guess it depends on what you mean by share. I mean, I don't know. Anyway, um, they also upped the, I guess related to the file thing, they upped the, they upped the max size for attachments. I guess it used to be 10 meg, now it's 25 meg or something. Um well, they've also started relaxing some of the limits. Um, I believe that I'm not sure if they're piloting in this next release or if they're GA, but they're the, for things like batches and future calls, you'll, you'll be able to kind of increase the batch size or I'm sorry, the heap size that you're using or the number of transact. Well, transaction limits is gone now, but um, wait, wait, heap say that size again? is probably it. What's gone? Transaction um, script limits. Saw that. Yeah. And there's other limits that are gone too. The, the, the one I was specifically talking to is that you'll be able to, you'll be able to annotate your future method or your batch method to say times two or times three. And that basically just kind of increases the amount of heap size, the amount of memory you're able to use within a transaction um, for those special cases. Yeah. So there are, my understanding was there are uh, several different limits that you can either kind of like choose to opt out of or, or ask to be increased but you can only pick one of them at a time. Like you can say, Hey, I'd like double the heap, but that, but that means that you can't say you want, you know, double the number of SQL results. 
right? You can pick right. one or the other, you know, you can only pick one at a time, which and, that still will be helpful in certain situations. But, and I want to say they up the limit of batch sizes you can have running at a particular time, or at least future calls um, that for some reason that's coming F- to futures went up. Yeah. The yeah. future limits went way up. I think um, for a while it was like, I think 5,000 futures in a 24 hour period for an org, which is really way too low for, I mean, there's been times when feature was kind of the escape hatch to be able to do something. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I still chose not to do it though, because everyone was going to be using this in the, in the org. And it was very conceivable that we would hit 5,000 features in a day. So, so that's, that's good. That's gone way up. I don't know what the number is, but I think it's, if I recall correctly, it's like an order of magnitude. Um, this is a little thing, but I thought it was cool. So, you know, in the setup search thing, so if, um, instead of having to find the item and setup you want, you can just search for it in that search box at the top. Right. That is now going to include custom objects and, and custom fields. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. I, I always, I always start typing an object and going, crap, it's not a standard. I have to go to objects and then freaking search for it there. Although the, although the, the remaining major issue with that search is, you know, you click on it, you start typing to narrow down what you want. You should just be able to arrow down to the, to the one you want and hit enter and go to it. I still have to take once I, you know, once I filter and narrow it down, I still have to go back to the mouse and, and click on that item. I want to just stay on the mouse. It should just read your mind. Or should like look where your eyes are looking and it just should. click on it. Come on, Benny, off, get on it. <laughs> Let's get that done. Dreamforce. Uh, I want to see it. Uh, what's that Oculus Rift? Is it Oculus? I think it's Oculus. The the VR yeah. headset. Uh-huh. Yeah, we yep. should. Salesforce should support Oculus. Well, I mean, I I've got a webcam that's just staring at me all day on my MacBook here. Why can't they just turn that thing on and see what I'm looking at? Or just watch you in general. I mean, you're an interesting person to watch, right? Uh, no comment. <laughs> um, so another thing I noticed, they, they site.com got like a couple of really minor changes, but it's, it's just such a small representation of the release notes. You think, I mean, do you know anyone who's using this? Sites? No, site.com. It's the, it's the content management system that Salesforce bought a few years ago. Oh, that's right. Yeah, no, I don't. Um, in fact, I don't know if I brought this up before, but Heroku is going to start supporting things like um, PHP and things like that, which makes it possible that you might be able to have some kind of WordPress or something that integrates directly with Salesforce, which in of itself is a content management. So, yeah, but just because it's on Heroku doesn't mean it integrates with Salesforce. All. I mean, even the Heroku. No, no, I mean, Heroku is going to have all the libraries and everything to, to connect with Salesforce. So it'd just be a hop, skip, and a wave to to basically tack on a WordPress CMS to, to Salesforce. And that kind of negates the need for a site. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, far more people out there doing some great stuff with WordPress and all those plugins. And there are site.com. I, I just don't think Salesforce got site.com right at all. The pricing was way off. It's like, you know, 15 or 20,000 a year. I'm just starting. I, I wasn't so sure that it was something they really needed to implement anyways. I mean, I, I guess at some point people were asking for it and think they wanted it from Salesforce, but realistically is that is that what salesforce is good at is cms no no it's not and cms's turn out to be like incredibly hard and and they're really all about community as well like if you look at the popular cms's i mean one of the reasons they're so popular is is because of the size of the community and the number of um like what do they call them components or plugins or whatever so i don't know i mean it's either one of those things that a lot of people were asking for and didn't really realize what that meant and and just never used it. Or it was one of those that Salesforce was just said, Hey, this seems to be a pretty big thing right now. Let's try it. 
Um, so something else that's new is with custom objects, um, any custom object going forward will either be considered a light or an enterprise custom object. That I missed. Explain that one to me. That sounds so, interesting. Uh, the, basically, the light custom objects can't be accessed with the bulk API. Is this to kind of differentiate between um, force.com licenses and Salesforce actual licenses? I think um, I might have touched on I think I might have read a little bit about this. It's starting to sound familiar, but no, it's okay. So, so enterprise objects can have bulk API access. They can have streaming API access and they can use sharing, right? Mm-hmm. Which all right current uh, up until summer 14, that's what all objects had. Well, now you can choose to opt out of those three features and they become light custom objects, which I, I'm assuming the limits are way higher on those. Yeah, I'm kind of curious as to what that means performance-wise from our perspective. Maybe it, maybe the major difference is on the Salesforce side. Yeah, I mean, obviously they're trying to encourage you to use light custom objects if you can, and they'll give you much higher limits as, yeah. as a... I mean, I guess it helps to kind of reduce complexity. They're, they're able to kind of say this set of objects will never need this functionality, and thus we don't have to waste compute cycles on mm-hmm. monitoring for these type of events on these objects. All right, so I, I, here's something that's the really the big bummer of Summer 14. Have you ever used a homepage component like the HTML area in order to get JavaScript on the page? Yep, I know where you're going. Well, that's going away, It's right? going away. It's, mm-hmm. all visual, it's a Visual Force include now. Yep, and of course what that means is that it's going to be in an iframe, which yeah. means that you can't actually access the rest of the, the page. Exactly, yep. And it's kind of funny because they even offered that, you know, embed a visual force page at, um, as a, as a way to continue to, to do this. But that actually doesn't solve the problem at all because that visual force page is embedded in an iframe. Well, I think it, well, and it's know. on a different, start from a different domain, which I'm means torn that on the, it because I used it to kind of do some hackish things and really, of course, we all, that's what we all do. I know. And it, it was kind of a necessary evil because we don't have the right kind of hooks in the system. We've talked about this before. We don't have the right hooks to be able to do some of the things we want to do. So we end up hacking the system by using something like that, where we stick a HTML component with some JavaScript that just runs every time the page loads. I can remember before Salesforce got very serious about security. I mean, I could put script tags in your and page layout section headers. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those were, the those good were old fun days. days. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is supposedly big. You can now do publisher actions from orgs that don't use chatter. It seems like everything's going to pu- to actions nowadays. I don't even fully understand actions, but well, actions is pretty much what they're using to support mobile as well. So if you have, right. if you're on a, an account or something, you need to create a quick opportunity or something. It's the action layout that you're using for that. So it, it seems like actions is becoming this way of not only being able to do something from chatter in the desktop, but as a way to do it directly from your mobile app. Yeah. It's almost um, like a replacement for quick create in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I guess they're similar. I'm again, I don't, I don't, I don't know enough about them. Uh, so the last thing I wrote down was there's um, they're, they, they're doing a critical update to enforce governor limits on flow. So I guess they forgot to enforce governor limits on flows. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, and someone, I and someone oops. realized that they're like, oops, that's going to be like, yeah. oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> this so, this flow is like using a hundred percent cycles here. So the funny thing is, imagine how many people have flows right now that are totally going to be violating governor limits. Uh, how many people are are <laughs> using flows and realized uh, this isn't that great? 
I don't know. <laughs> they, they are making some improvements to flows. And I, I think, um, I think a few of the people I work with have mentioned that there's some things coming that might make it nicer to use. But I think I, what I hear commonly is there's a love hate and relationship with them. I think they've gotten more power. I mean, it, it's one of those things like when they first launched it, it was pretty limited and very rough and it, it seems like it gets better. I still haven't, I, just, I still don't use them much. It seems to get better with every release though and more powerful. Um, but aren't there also visual workflow now? Hello. I'm thinking about it. I'm not. Anyway, so I was going to say for things like visual workflow or, or these flow, visual force flows, whatever they call them. I think one thing that people, some administrators like about them is that you don't have to test them. Right. And this is the, this is, and because to, to, to administrators and honestly to most of the Salesforce consultants out there. And by the way, they should, they should be ashamed of themselves. They like them because uh, you know, they don't have to test and cause they, and they see testing as just this pain in the ass thing they have to do before you can deploy to production. But that's, that's the main reason why I don't like workflow and I don't like this uh, flows like visual force flows is because they're hard to test. They're not very testable. This is also why I don't like most of these integration platforms because they're hard to test. They're really not designed with testability in mind. No, I mean, I think I kind of agree with that, that, you know, it does kind of create this mindset that they can create, do this something with point and click, but I think the whole premise behind point and click and losing that very fine level grain of customizability in favor of some point and click wizards is that you don't have to test it because it's kind of already tested. It's, it's basically its own self-contained application. So you're basically just configuring metadata or configuring data and thus it doesn't fall into the realm of custom development when you're talking about these these type of solutions. It might not be in custom development, but things like these flows and especially workflow and validation rules and all these types of things, they fully interact with your all of your custom code. So when you do Apex that you know does any kind of DML, I mean, that's firing all your... It, uh, it all becomes... It, it fa- in fact, at that point, it doesn't matter what's Apex code and what's not. Bottom line, a workflow is code. It's all code. I mean, it all boils down to and I think you're you know, leading up code. to to your point that you always make on this is that really those things should trigger unit tests to run, and I think that's the better solution. It's not so much that these tools bypass testing; it's that meaning that well, bypass testing in the way that you don't have to write a test for your flow. What I mean is that they bypass testing and that they don't have to validate that what they did broke your code. Exactly. You can make you can edit workflows in production, which is a terrible idea, and not have to run any tests and because right tests are just a pain and I, in the I wouldn't ass, right? care if they, if they changed them in production, as long as it ran the tests and made sure that it didn't break something. But, but that, to do that, the yeah, tests have to be much more efficient and much faster. That's true. And that's still not adequate though. Like, I mean, just because it passed the test, I mean, you still want, you know, functional type testing, even if that's manual, like, okay, so it passed the test. Now I'm going to see if it worked. Yeah. I, I think gonna, that's I'm a reality go. that we won't ever see. I mean, we're dealing with non, I don't know. I mean, non-developers, just wanting to point and click and get something done. Well, like, like I told you earlier, I mean, with my clients nowadays, I mean, w- w- you know, if I'm working on building something for their org, I'm going to, I'm going to bring in all the custom objects, custom fields, workflow, you know, validations, uh, page layouts, profiles, everything that what I'm working on touches is now under the control of the sandbox I'm working in. And it's going to be a part of the package that gets deployed. 
you know, if you go making changes in production, they're going to get overwritten next time I deploy. And it's just, it's just, it's just bringing some, uh, some process and some standards to what we're doing and some quality and some professionalism. And if you're not doing these types of things, then you should look at it. I mean, because unless it doesn't matter, I mean, but I'm assuming this is business critical for most of the most orgs that, that run Salesforce. And I think that's becoming more and more true. I mean, I think more, I think most enterprises out there have some kind of methodology for, for release cycles. I mean, it's not like it's foreign to them. They all have some kind of release cycle for any kind of custom development they do for homegrown systems. They have some kind of cycle for any kind of integration work they do. And so I don't think it's foreign to them. I think, I think what's happened historically is that Salesforce has kind of been outside of the radar that people have kind of implemented it within organizations and have been able to manage it internally with some system admin. And that as that becomes more ingrained in the culture of the the company, they're having, they're going to have to start looking at implementing these type of practices. Yeah. It's just, it hasn't really entered like the ethos of most of the Salesforce world yet. And I just think it needs to, and a lot of people are pushing for it. I mean, I'm sure at Dreamforce, you know, there's going to be there. I think there always have been, but well, every, more every than, year, I, every year that I've gone, I've heard someone ask some product manager, Hey, when are we going to get some kind of methodology system into, into Salesforce? You know, how, how do we, kind of track our changes and wrap some process around this. And it's, it's not something Salesforce wants to solve. I don't think, I think they're, they want to leave that open to the community to figure out how to solve it their own way or have some kind of third party system manage that. And see, I think that's, that's a shame. They should really take a leadership role because there's issues with it that only they can fix. I mean, I just, I saw um, one of the sessions that got approved for Dreamforce again this year is how to do team development on Salesforce yeah, and it's not an it's not a session again because something's changed. It's gotten better. It's an it's a session again this year because it really hasn't changed. It's still a big pain in the ass, and people are still struggling with it. Yeah, I agree. I agree that I think Salesforce probably should do something to something within the system, or, or at least put out there you know some best practices beyond just having a bunch of customers go up there and say, "Well, here's what we do." You know, we have this log, this appointment log, or we have this process and this is what we do. And that, that's what those sessions end up being. Well, and it's what we were talking about last week in, in traditional or even modern, modern development outside of the Salesforce world. Basically every developer has the system running on their, on their machine. You know, the code, you, uh, everything's checked into the code base, the, you know, data, um, database changes, of course, all the codes there to run it, and you're running it locally, whether it's a .NET app or a Ruby app or Java or anything else. Well, Salesforce, they don't let us run Salesforce locally. So it's, it's all in the cloud, which means that either we all, you know, it, it just goes back to, do we all share a sandbox? We all have separate sandboxes? Of course, the answer is, if you're doing anything serious, you have to have, each developer has to have, no, each developer has to have a separate sandbox. <laughs> no, I, I can't stand that. It's it's really the only way to do it. And if, unless you have some automation to kind of sync changes back and forth, something always gets out no, of sync. No, you don't have to have automation. Someone you have always a sh- you have a shared overwrites code. something mm-hmm. incorrectly. No. No, that happens all in you know if your version control, like in Git, for example. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's a page layout or a someone changed a user profile. When well, I'm I, waiting when on I, you to figure that out. You're supposed you were working on that and yeah, you're have. supposed to share that with the world of how that's going. Well, someone's going to um, at Dreamforce this year. It's not you? No, I'm not going to Dreamforce. I'm saying I thought you were working on this 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 GitHub integration versioning auto compile auto release type thing. Oh, I think you're thinking of something else. Um, 
I don't know what you're thinking of, but I mean, cause I've had various kind of ideas around how yeah, we can, how we can improve put some of it to product into practice. Well, we're going to kind of share what your results of that experience. No, I guess I could. I, I don't know that I have, I don't think I have anything worth sharing right now. That's, that's anything that a lot of people don't already know. I, I, I argue that anything shared on that topic is worth knowing. Maybe so. I just, I, <clears throat> I, I haven't put together, I'd have to put some, together something that's coherent that, would be easy for people to consume. And I haven't done that yet. It's, I'm, I agree. It would, it's, would be a good idea and probably useful. Yeah. So anyways, I want to get to my little topic here. Cause we are running out of time. Cause we are running out of time. <laughs> and, um, I think it's going to be pretty funny or okay. at least interesting. I'm not trying to force comedy here, but <laughs> do you know who Yoshiki is? No, <laughs> neither did I. And so Yoshiki seems to be Benioff's new BFF. Cause okay. On Twitter, I follow Benioff on Twitter, and anytime he has some kind of major event or any kind of thing, I'm always seeing selfies of Benioff and Yoshiki and whether it's with someone else. So I finally decided to look up Yoshiki on the internet. Okay. And um, so I want you to play clip one because I want you to experience this the way I experienced this. Yeah, great. Okay. And, and by the way, this is a, this is going to be, this is a band. So we're about to hear some music here. And how, how much of this are we playing? Like a minute? Is that what it is? Uh, yeah, I think up to the 55 mark, I think, right. is what I had. think so because they um you can go and taper it off now <laughs> is that i can't even tell is that english um yes this song is actually in english but it's they're japanese and uh, a lot of their songs are in japanese so okay <laughs> so so, so is, the drummer you found so band? cute the drummer you found so cute <laughs> is yoshiki okay <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why Benioff hangs out with him or her. Because- well, see, the reason you got to kind of imagine what I'm thinking here. I'm like, really? Uh, Benioff is into speed metal? Because that's essentially what they, what they are. They actually, are, I guess they formed sometime around the 90s. And Yoshiki was one of the founders of the band. And he's actually the drummer. He's actually a pretty good drummer from what I can see from the few things I've seen him do. Um, And so they kind of originated back in the 90s and they did the whole speed metal thing. And then they kind of, progressed over the years like most bands do into these kind of rock ballads um and that's what this one is because it was released out in 2011 i think okay that was not a ballad <laughs> well it, it, it yeah it's got that speed element minute in it mixed with a ballad so if you let it continue on you'll get some of that kind of ballad oh it's like half time or something yeah you'll okay. kind of get that have that kind of feeling from it so everyone's always trying to change what a genre is so this was their attempt at it so anyways i'm like Really? I had no idea Benioff was into speed metal. I guess they're kind of big too. Like, um, so Yoshiki, Yoshiki had a solo career and well, he does have a solo career and that's what oh, we're getting okay. leading up to because he's actually a classically trained musician. Mm, he yep. is a classical piano player. Um, and so we'll play the next clip so we can see what Yoshiki's been up to lately. Okay. This is number two. Yep. 
<laughs> Stroking the ivories, huh? I love how there's a guy a in the background going. Piano. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he's got a lighter. I was like, oh god. <laughs> Tear rolling down my eye, and I'm just yeah. thinking about my first love. I don't know. Hey, he really. I mean, once he when he's in his you know concert getup, it does look like a girl. Kind of cute. Yeah, I, I I think he's kind of taking that cue from the that's <laughs> nice hair, like man. the David Bowie era where all the all the rock guys were all kind of dressing like women. Almost is androgynous the word? I I guess I don't know. Confused yeah. or <laughs> <laughs> so I was very confused about who Yoshiki was and why Benioff was was. You know, just posting nonstop pictures of them. I mean, like, I'm like this. This is BFF stuff here. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and it oh. turns out that he's actually performing on the Salesforce one tour, and I think he's going to be performing tomorrow, or at least July third. Um, so whenever this gets posted, <laughs> mm. but July third is when he's going to perform on the Salesforce one tour. And I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up showing up at Dreamforce either this year or next year. Maybe not head. Maybe not headline it with a concert, but you know how on the keynote, and maybe they don't show this online. But usually at the keynotes, there's some kind of music performance in between. I think Hammer was in there one year, maybe last year or the year before or something. There's a few other acts that came in. Well, I think we've exhausted our time and our topics. I Unless you got so. anything else? Did you bring anything to drink? Uh, I did. Um, I'll let you go first because I got to do a little prep here. <laughs> oh, prep. I'm just continuing my journey into the the realm of scotches. So I, I recently bought a, another Balvini, but this one's a double wood, meaning that it's aged in whiskey oak and sherry oak barrels um, within that 12-year time frame. Um, I think it's a better representation of scotches than the last one I tried, which was a Caribbean cast, which is a rum rum barrel. Mm-hmm. And I and when I compared the two, the flavors were different. That rum did kind of distinctly change the the scotch quite a bit. So I like it; it's pretty good. Mm. Cool. Yeah. So I just had a it's you know a hot afternoon here in the suburbs of Dallas, Texas, and one of my favorite summer drinks, actually my num- my number one favorite summer drink is a Negroni. Um, but I guess the close cousin of that is a gin and tonic. And that's what I'm having. Um, so I made it with this gin called number 209. I think it's domestic actually, but it's, it's, um, very like citrus and like herb driven instead of uh, like juniper driven. And I I do like some of the juniper kind of heavy gins, but, um, sometimes I like, you know, these other styles. Um, and this one does have juniper, but it's just, it's juniper kind of takes a backseat to like, what do they have in here? Like a orange peel, lemon peel, coriander, uh, Kasha bark, which I think is cinnamon, cardamom, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then the tonic I'm using is uh, Jack Rudy, which is one of these kind of new, a uh, small batch 
like super high quality, you know, artisan tonic producers. And what you do is you buy like a, this is almost like a, uh, apothecary jar of a concentrated tonic syrup. And it's not, it's a syrup. It's not carbonated at all. So you have to, if you want to have tonic water, you would mix a little bit of the syrup with, um, with like sparkling water or club soda. Mm-hmm. And we have a soda stream, so that's easy. So yeah, so I'm having like an exploding a, machine. <laughs> exactly. A, a house bomb. <laughs> um, but yeah, it makes a damn good gin and tonic, really good gin and, you know, well-made, you know, artist, artisanal, I, I can't hear the artisan, word artisanal tonic. I can't hear the word gin without thinking of Dre and Snoop Dogg gin and juice. No. Every time I hear the word gin, I'm just thinking rolling down the street. What kind of gin do they drink? Probably uh, Hendrix or I'll see. What Probably whatever's the cheapest. <laughs> no, well, nowadays, the Mr. Stuff, billionaire uh, uh, Dre <laughs> pulled, pulled off one of the biggest scams in like business history, selling <laughs> selling their monster manufactured $14 bill material headphone company to Apple for $3 billion. Yeah. I'm sure he's drinking his gin and gold goblets now nope. or something. I mean, more power to him. You know, I mean, as far as I know, I don't think they, you know, I think Apple knew what they were doing and they didn't lie to them or anything. It's just, they, it's really the, uh, I don't want to get into that, but it's, it was a, it was a brand thing and a perception <laughs> It was definitely thing. a brand thing. I think. Apple's perceived as such well, a. Well, no, I think it was brand and they, they do have a music curation service and I, I think that was part of it too. Yeah, but it has like no traction. I mean, it's, that's, that was almost nothing. I mean, there might be a future there. I don't know, but. Maybe. Anyway. Anyways. That's a topic for about three weeks ago. (laughs) Well, to that, I say good day, sir. Good day, sir.